Hello, and welcome to Sobercast. We provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in a podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Also, if you're a member of NA or have friends that are, please tell them about our other podcast, NAPOD. NAPOD features NA speakers and workshops in the same format as Sobercast. We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. My name is Ray I'm an alcoholic. And they asked me here because I've been around a long time. You can tell by looking at me, I've been someplace for a long time. That's the one announcement here they didn't make. I suppose it's from the hotel. Going to make it? I'll make it. It says here, in case of fire, would all of the non-alcoholics remain seated? until the alcoholics are well clear of the building. (laughs) Sort of a personal uh, thing, public relations and public uh, service announcement. Our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is here, that's the blue one. Not the red one or the white one, the blue. Nothing from Hazel Crap out there in Nebraska. This is. <laughs> this says when talking, we should uh, say what we were like. A lot of people said, think it says what it was like. You don't want to know that, do you? Not worthwhile. What we were like, what happened, and what we are like now. And the way we do that, of course, is... Talk about my favorite subject. I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. 100% self-absorbed still. And uh, so I start off by telling you that uh, I grew up, or at least I got a little taller, in uh, in one of New York City's neighborhoods in the Bronx. And. Uh, my neighborhood was rough and it was tough and it was Irish. I don't know how much you know about that out here in Missouri, but uh, they drank in that neighborhood. Oh yes, oh yes. <laughs> you see people on the street under the influence of alcohol. Yes, true. Yeah. <laughs> if you look where I lived, you see a little drinking. My mother, the widow of Keep, was known to take a drink from time to time. And when the pressure got on, Kitty would go for the light wines and the spirits. Something would fly, usually one of the children. <laughs> my, my brother Billy, on the other hand, was very bad drunk. And in a neighborhood of Irish drunks, Billy O'Keefe stood out. So when I showed up at the local joint and ordered up whatever they were serving 14-year-olds that afternoon, Nobody paid any attention to me. Just another O'Keefe coming through the system. <laughs> I'm not sure what they gave me that day. It's too long ago, but I'm, I suspect it was a beer. That was the neighborhood drink. And, and whatever it was, I'll tell you this, I loved it. I liked everything about it. I liked the way it looked. I liked the way it smelled. I liked the way it tasted. I liked what it did for my head. I liked the noise. I liked the fights. I liked the confusion. I like the Irish music. I love the bullshit. I loved it. Chased it around for about 25 years. I was going through the parochial school system in a manner of speaking. <laughs> Got into all of the difficulties you might imagine a young man would get into trying to go through that system drunk. Uh, it's bad enough sober, but you go through drunk. It causes problems. And I just found out, uh, oh, maybe five or six years ago, I found out I'm from a dysfunctional family. (laughs) 
That's all right, though. Don't worry. I uh, I talked it over with my inner child. <laughs> we got in touch with the issues, and uh, I found my emotions. And now that we have that horse shit out of the way, we can have a real AA meeting now. Uh, I don't know what happened. Somebody made a mistake someplace, and I ended up in college. <laughs> Not only did I end up in college, I ended up in college in the state of Vermont, which in drinking terms back then was a third world country. <laughs> and there were no bars. They had just restaurants. And these people sat around at tables. And they drank beer out of bottles. And they sang college songs. And they wore white shoes in the wintertime. And being a man of no particular moral fiber, I got a pair of white shoes. I learned the words of some of those dopey songs. I got very collegiate. And uh, World War II was just ending. And it uh, seemed a good bet. We looked like we were winning. And so one day I got a haircut and I joined the Navy. And I ended up on a minesweeper out in San Francisco. I hate to be indelicate before such a large group, but I have to tell you, I had trouble with my kidneys when I drank. And in the Navy, we slept three to a tear. Don't get ahead of me, lady, please. You know, it's, it's not an easy thing I'm doing here. I made my first liberty in the city of San Francisco, got all the beer in me I could buy, went back to the ship, and I had one of these accidents. And I met the fellow that slept below me that night. <laughs> I suppose he thought he'd be wet sometime during his naval career, but it hadn't occurred to him it would happen while he was asleep. So I was immediately transferred to a lower bunk. And, uh, the rest of my naval career was just as distinguished, and uh, I came out some years later undecorated, unpromoted, and unloved. I got back to the neighborhood. Everything was up to date there, except that I could not find my mother. She was out in the weeds somewhere. My brother, Billy, had become a New York City policeman after he got out of the service, and uh, Billy wasn't there either. He had an argument with a man who fell off a roof. So Billy went west. He went to a more peaceful endeavor. He uh, went back to the Marine Corps. <laughs> the 5220 Club was available for veterans. We got 20 bucks a week for 52 weeks. I signed up for some checks, I gravitated to the local joint, and I was planning a life of petty crime with some of the people from grammar school. We were going to have a stolen car ring, and naturally I was going to be the president of it. And I had one of those clear thoughts that come every once in a while. On a Sunday afternoon, I remembered I'd been to college. So, so I went back up there on a bus, and I arrived in the middle of a blizzard. And I walked into this bar, restaurant, and there they were, sitting around the table, singing those songs, wearing those shoes. I got another pair of shoes. And now a grateful government was sending me a check every month. So I was relatively solvent and moderately drunk most of the time. And one day I was staring around the campus in my usual condition, and there was a list of names on a bulletin board of people who were qualified to graduate. And my name was on the list. And that was excellent news. I thought I had another year to go. <laughs> well, you can't keep track of everything, you know. <laughs> so I invited the widow to this great event, and she came north. That was a very tender occasion. The widow and her youngest child staggering around under the elms and just <laughs> bring tears to a stone, I'll tell you. <laughs> A little while later, when I became rich and famous, they put me on the board of trustees of that college, and I go to meetings. They were still talking about my mother. <laughs> it isn't so often in the state of Vermont that a little old lady gets off a train drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning, 
starts a fist fight with the guy handling the luggage. You know, I don't, I don't see that every day. So I came back to the neighborhood after college. The question was what to do. My family is run by my uncles. They're Irish, and, uh, and they work. That's why they run the family. And uh, they voted unanimously that I become a city policeman, which my father had been and my brother had been, and all my uncles and my cousins were doing, except for the two morons that worked for the telephone company. <laughs> but I told them I had received a scholarship to law school, and I'd be unemployed for several years. That was received with mixed emotions. And, uh, but I went off to law school. I didn't know anything about lawyers or law school. We didn't have any lawyers in my neighborhood. We had cops and we had priests. We didn't really need any lawyers or anything. <laughs> I hate to be disloyal to the profession that made Clayton a rich man, but <laughs> I got to tell you, when I showed up uh, at the Fordham University School of Law, I was in the collection of the greatest company of stiffs that had ever assembled under one roof. God, they were deadly. They all had on a blue suit and eyeglasses. <coughs> so I got into uniform. I found a pair of glasses I don't think I needed, but I won't. And I went on a wagon. I stopped drinking. With law school, they terrified me, so I just stopped drinking. And as a result of that, I did well. And as a result of that, I was taken into a large Wall Street law firm. They hired me as sort of the resident immigrant. <laughs> it was not a total loss, however. I did learn to say, oh, really, instead of no shit. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Covers a lot, doesn't it? Oh, really? My superiors there determined that I should be trained as a trial lawyer. So I was sent up to the New York City courthouse to learn my business. And I wasn't there very long when I discovered that all the wise guys were across the street in the saloon, the really bright ones. So I moved into the saloon. And I learned to drink in a different, the more civilized, the more genteel fashion. Very few members of the profession were knocking down shots and beers where anybody could see them. I discovered scotch in a, a glass with water and ice. You sip on that. It takes a little while, but it gets the job done. I was introduced to all of the mysteries and all of the rituals that surround the very, very dry martini. And to this evening and to this moment, my love, my admiration, and my affection for the very, very dry martini is surely the greatest case of unrequited love the world has ever seen. I was so loyal, and they, and they almost killed me. It was time in my natural development to be married, and I had located this lady, or she had located me. I was a bellhop in a hotel one summer. She was a guest. And that pretty well characterizes the relationship right now. <laughs> Mrs. O'Keefe, my wife, my current wife, I always call her my current wife. I find it keeps her on her toes. <laughs> She's been current for 43 years, so... Don't do things like that. Don't I have enough trouble? <laughs> so anyhow, it was a wonderful thing. We got married. And Miss O'Keefe began to produce children. Oh, yes. With the regularity that is known only to the Roman Catholic. <laughs> Boy, she was popping those things out. And... Uh, after I, we count things by children, after about the second or third of those kids, I was invited to become a member of the law school faculty at Fordham University Law School. And so I responded to that appointment with great alacrity, the boy professor. And I knew I drank like a pig. 
So I have, my logic is impeccable. I thought I would drink less. Uh, until I got the job under control. So I drank less. Actually, I drank more when I was drinking less than when I was drinking more, because when I was drinking less, I was so nervous, I had to drink more so I could continue to drink less. You understand that? Of course you do. But it turned out, after a few years, I was competent to be a teacher, and in fact, I still am. And uh, and so I went back out to drink as the way I like to drink. I only knew one way how to drink. My father died when I was two. Uh, my mother was alcoholic. My brother Billy was four years older than I, and he was my father and my hero, my big brother. And I tried to do everything just like Billy, unfortunately. I'm not, I uh, wasn't the same as Billy, but I tried to do everything like Billy. And I drank just like Billy. I drank until I fell down, or the place went on fire, or the cops showed up, or something would happen to interfere with it all. So I went back out to do that. By this time, we had it up to, uh, oh, I don't know. I found out I was a pretty good teacher. It took about three years. We had it up to about uh, six kids, maybe seven. It's hard to keep track of things like that. A lot of kids. They were all there. You see them. They were there all the time. They didn't miss any meals at all. None of them. And we had acquired all the stuff. You know, we had all the stuff. We had the house and the cars and all the all the stuff. And had you asked me in those days how I was doing, I'd be very happy to tell you I was doing very well. Thank you. In fact, I would do that whether you asked me or not. Sort of one of my themes, you know, O'Keefe and the American Dream. Truth of the matter was, I was drunk every day. Every single day I was drunk. And uh, I was putting down about two quarts of vodka a day, and I was keeping maybe a quart and a half, you know, in my system. And I didn't want to get too low. I was a little spongy. And, uh, and I rattled around. It's very hard to teach you constitutional law after you drink a quart of vodka. You sort of get Jefferson mixed up with Madison. <laughs> Things get a little dim. You take a little nap in the middle of the class. You know, so it's an hour and a half. You sort of snooze off while somebody else is talking. And, uh, and then Mrs. O'Keefe. Oh, I forgot to tell you this. You know, her mother was never right. You understand? I mean, not enough that you would put her anywhere. But the woman wasn't right. That screw was about a quarter of a turn off. You know? And of course, she passed it on to her daughter. <laughs> and uh, Miss O'Keefe began to go a little mental on me. And, uh, she told me, listen to this. <laughs> There was something radically wrong with the way I drank. She's not an attorney. <laughs> she does not have the benefit of a legal education. And, uh, and because of that, and because of the problems her mother had, I would have to explain things to her, which I was happy to do. And uh, so I did explain to her the relativity of drinking, which is to say that some people drink more than other people. <laughs> All right? You buy that much? On a relative scale, I said, I'm not such a big drinker. As a matter of fact, I don't drink as much as my mother. And she says, nobody drinks as all well. You know, you can't have them insult your mother. That's going too far. So I go over and see mom. We really do do a job. And, uh, so this made her a little more mental. And uh, so she betook herself to her physician, who, as you might imagine, is an obstetrician. He could find nothing the matter with her until she told him about me, an act of gross disloyalty. You'll see that. And uh, 
I'm one of the few men in Alcoholics Anonymous who comes here upon the advice of a gynecologist. <laughs> and she came back from her doctor and told me her doctor, the obstetrician, had diagnosed her husband, the law professor, as an alcoholic. Oh, I was so upset. Oh, imagine my rage. Oh, dear. I rose to defend myself, which is my custom, and I launched into one of my things. I, I took a very, very dim view of a physician who would diagnose a patient without ever having seen the patient. I was against that shabby type of medical practice, all too common in our country today. <laughs> Then I went to high gear and I asked Mrs. O'Keefe a question to which she has not yet discovered the answer. I asked her what kind of a man became an obstetrician in the first place. <laughs> you got it. And the conversation was going downhill at a terrific rate. And then it happened. I don't know how this happened. It happened. I cannot explain to you how this happened. I can explain many, many other things to you, and I probably will in the second or third hour of this terrific talk. <laughs> but in the middle of all my raving, I stopped, and I admitted to Miss O'Keefe <clears throat> that there had been, <clears throat> this is very painful. More than, there have been several occasions, more than one, several occasions, upon which I had permitted myself to be overserved. <laughs> I was willing to go that far. Mrs. O'Keefe is a very formidable woman. She went into her act, and three days later, I was a prisoner in a mental institution in Stanford, Connecticut. And I was only there a matter of moments when I discovered a very serious architectural deficiency in the building. <laughs> There was no doorknob on my side <laughs> of the door. And in addition to everything else horrible going on that day, it happened to be the occasion of my 35th birthday. And I mentioned this to a man in a white coat who was hanging around. And I very carefully explained to that cretin that on that day I had attained age 35 and therefore under the Constitution of the United States of America I was eligible for the office of president. <laughs> he urged me not to plan any campaigns. <laughs> Said there were two other presidents in residence, and uh, they want to tax security with another candidate. You know? so I, I don't like to be pushed around like that. People make fun of me. So I, I went back. I was playing Monopoly with three guys who were there. Uh, they were there. They weren't alcoholics. They were there. And we played Monopoly all day and half the night. And uh, one of them was under the impression that I was his real estate broker. <laughs> you know anything about the game of Monopoly, and some nut thinks you're his real estate broker, you do pretty well. I had the boardwalk, I had hotels, you know, I was sort of investing, saving my money, staying out of jail and all that stuff. And not drinking. The old Monopoly therapy was working. It's just as good as some of the horse shit they hand out now, I'll tell you. 
And then he said I had a visitor. Well, nobody visited me. I hadn't seen anybody since I went in. And I went down and waited, and in that room came this very imposing-looking guy. And he said he was from uh, Darien, Connecticut, group of Alcoholics Anonymous, that the hospital had given up on me, and they'd asked him to come by and talk to me about our program. And uh, I immediately reverted to my origins in the South Bronx, and uh, I almost had him by the throat. I called him a few names. You know what he said to me? This is a terrible, terrible thing to happen. You know what he said to me? He said to me, and I quote, shut up. <laughs> now, rude? That's very rude. I intuitively forgave him because I knew that they had failed to tell him who I was. So I thought I would take the opportunity. I would tell him who I was. I began to tell him. Who I, you know what he said? He said, sit down and shut up. <laughs> well, I was not a well person. Uh, he was very imposing. So I sat and, uh, and he began to explain to me how he had been like and what happened to him and where he'd been for the last 10 or 11 years. It was a fascinating story. And, uh, he said, I'd like you to go with me to meetings. <clears throat> Meetings? Meetings, sir? What type of meeting do you have reference to, sir? He said meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Always meetings of, of, of uh, Anonymous. I see. Where are these meetings? Why may I ask? He said they're outside. I said I'm going with you. <laughs> and besides that he gave me matches you ever been in one of those hatches you can't have matches you know? I thought that showed a certain degree of confidence so we went tootling around and uh, he made arrangements for me to go locally and uh, I came back out and I went to where I lived a place called Lodgemont, New York and I started to go locally and uh, I don't remember so much of all of that in those days, uh, the medical community was of the opinion that the disease of alcoholism was caused by some type of a Valium deficiency. <laughs> so when they let you loose from one of those hatches, they gave you a big jar of Valium so you could keep your level up and never get deficient. And so I used to walk around with that stuff in my pocket. I, they said, have one when you feel like a drink. Well, I felt like a drink every minute of every day. So I was walking around like a stiff dog, I'll tell you. So I don't remember it all, but I know myself well. And, and I figured I would come to Alcoholics Anonymous. You would recognize me as a superior person. You would elect me your president. Uh, I was always president if I joined something. I would serve a term as your president. Uh, we would have a dinner such as this. You would give me an award, and life would go on. Of course, I didn't have a home group, and I didn't have a sponsor, and I did nothing about the steps. I didn't need a home group or a sponsor. I'm an attorney. And so I got drunk instead. And I got drunk. I just, I did. I had 10 months of dryness, and then I got drunk, and brother, did I get drunk. I went out with a bang. And I'm not going to bring you through it. It just takes too long. It still scares me to death. But let me tell you this. It was the worst period of my life. I would drink a week, and I wouldn't drink a month. I'd drink a month, and I wouldn't drink a week. I'd drink and go to the meetings. I'd go to the meetings, and then I would drink. I never knew. Never knew where I'd be drinking. Never knew where. Certainly never knew where I'd be, where I'd end up. I never knew when it would start. I didn't know when it would finish. I, never, I didn't know anything. I just bounced around and bounced around. And, and things began to happen to me that had never happened to me before. And I do not speak to you now of things that happened to me in this period of my life 
that I no longer consider to be significant. I do not speak to you the fact that I was dismissed from the faculty, fired as a tenured professor of law, unheard of thing. I do not speak to you of the fact that I was in serious, I mean very serious, personal, professional, and financial difficulties. I do not even speak to you of the fact that uh, I had lost the affection of everyone who was around me. And that for the last three months of my drinking, I basically lived in an automobile. That's not what I'm talking to you about. What I'm talking to you about now is that I think there was in my case, and perhaps in yours, a terrible, terrible disintegration of my spirit. And this was a spirit which once burned in me so bright, and it was gone, and I knew it, and there wasn't a thing in this world I could do about it. I'd been here. This did not work for me. And by this time, I'd been everywhere else. I'd been up and down every avenue there was, and the answer was always the same. I was drunk. No matter what I did or where I went or what happened, I drank and got drunk. And it wasn't as though I didn't know about alcoholism. I knew about alcoholism. I knew about my neighborhood where I grew up. I knew all about that. I knew about my family. I'd been to the funerals. I knew why they died. We all knew. We made a joke of it. Does he look good now? He stopped. But self-knowledge, the book says self-knowledge is worthless. And so I continued to drink. And I really, really tell you this as I stand with you. I did not think I would ever stop drinking. I didn't think it was possible. I thought I would die just like everybody else. And then one day, my time came. One day. And I don't know any more about this than you do. But it seems to me that there is a time for all of us. And it seems to me that there is a time for each of us. I say to you that there is a line somewhere beyond which we are not permitted to go. And I say to you, there is a point somewhere below which we are not permitted to think. And it seems to me that there is a level of pain somewhere beyond which no human is required to endure. I don't know, how would I know that where this line is for you? I only know what happened to me. And I think this is a personal and an individual thing. And I also think that it is different in each case. And for some, it may be death. And that's the way it was for my brother Billy. They call one night from the Veterans Hospital in Minneapolis, and they told me my big brother was dead, that he had collapsed on the skid row, and they brought him to the vets, and he died. And so my big brother and my hero died the way alcoholics oftentimes do, without friends, without family. And he was a long, long way from our neighborhood in the Bronx. But I'll tell you this, I'll tell you this, my brother Billy doesn't drink 
anymore. It's over. And for other people, it's something trivial. But that line is there somewhere. And we all come to it in our own way. And I suppose in God's time. But come to it, we must. And I showed up on a day that uh, really wasn't much different from any other day. I was two or three days away from a drink. I had managed to get a job in this place. I was where I worked. and uh, I had money. A lot of money. And uh, there was a bar in the lobby of the building. And the question was where to go and what to do with this dough. And uh, Through the grace of God, I was given the opportunity to, to call a longtime friend of mine, a longtime member of this program. My sponsor, his name is John. And he came over. God, he walked in that room and he looked so good. And I felt so bad. He had about 10 years. So what do I have to do to, to make this thing? You know that look they give you, those sponsors? Look, you know, they look at you like you're an old turd. <laughs> he said, don't drink. You go to meetings. You'll be all right. See, he didn't even understand the problem. <laughs> I said, John, I heard all of that. You know, I was in for 10 months. The real problem is this place where I work, I'm much better than this place. He said, well, you're lucky to have this place. Boy. I said, well, at home it's worse, you know. I can't even go up there anymore. Yeah, he said, well, you know, if you don't drink and you go to meetings, maybe that'll work out. He said, I'm being sued for by a bank, you know. Yeah, he said, I read about it. Oh. I said, it's a misunderstanding. He said, I'm sure of it. <laughs> and if you don't drink and you go to meetings, you probably work that one out too. I began to sense there was no dialogue there. <laughs> he wasn't getting in touch with my emotions at all. So he said, he made a phone call or two, and he said, come on, you're not doing anything. And he took me out, and he put me on a train up to where I lived. It was about 40 minutes from Manhattan, where I worked. About halfway up, I reconsidered, you understand? What the hell did I call? I must have panicked. That's not like me. Call that fool. Don't drink, I assure my ass. Well, his plane, well, his train stops. And that's my attitude. I get off the plane where I live, and standing on the platform is the fellow who delivers my mail, Al. And he's the chairman of the local AA group. And Al says, get in the car. <laughs> and here's O'Keefe, the big load. I say, Al, I don't hang out with mailmen. No offense. He said, somebody called me about you from New York. Get in the car. I got an Al's car. I said, I think I'm in trouble. He said, well, you don't drink. You can go to her meetings. <laughs> It'll be all right. So if you want some... Some advice for me, because I've come up here from North Carolina, I must know something. You want some advice? Here's some advice for you. Ready? Don't drink. You go to meetings. Everything's going to be all right. Don't worry about it. I'll take me to the meeting that night. And uh, I never had another drink. Amazing thing. Now think about this. My wife, for whom I have the greatest affection, and always did, begged me to stop drinking for her sake, for the sake of all those children. And I said I would, but I could not. My boss, who was the godfather of one of those children, begged me to stop drinking. He said, we can't have you here that long. I said I would, but I could not. I could not stop drinking for love. I could not stop drinking for money. But the guy who delivered the mail to me 
came up to me after that first meeting. He said, I will get you tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. And I said, that'll be fine, Al. Do mailmen have a power that I'm not aware of? <laughs> what is that? I don't know what that is. I had that sponsor of mine. Boy, he was some trip. He really was. You would have loved him. I did. Not often, but I'd say to him, uh, I don't feel well. He'd say, well, this may be as good as you'll ever feel. <laughs> you know how we whine? You know, I'd say, well, when will I get a job? So when you're ready. I said, well, how will I know I'm ready? He said, you'll have a job. <laughs> So I thought I told you that. I said, God, I'm a nervous wreck. What do you think I should do? He said, hang on. I said, well, how do I hang on? He said, let go. <laughs> you know, it's like dealing with a Zen master, this guy. It was just, we had a fellow there. Right? He was a great guy. His name was Charlie or something. And, uh, he was very bright. He was like a chemist, chemist, something like that, something scientific. And Charlie had three months. Well, you know, guys got three months. <laughs> Forget the ten years. Three months, you can really talk to him. You know, he's still he's still sane. <laughs> ten years, you begin to drift off after a while. I showed up one night, and Charlie says, uh, "You know what it is? I don't have a clue." He said, "It's capillary." Capillaries. Yeah, he said, yeah, capillaries. Something wrong with the way we process alcohol has to do with our capillaries. I tested it out in the lab. He said, straighten this out. You'll be able to be all right. You can drink social. He said, you're a wonder, Charlie. You know, I... So John showed up. I said, John. He said, no kidding. Get me the book. So I went over and got him this book here. He gave me this book, by the way, in the first week. He said, read the black part here. <laughs> he said, don't read this white part. Just the black part there. He says, you read the white part, you'll go blind. <laughs> well, I was already going blind from the other thing, so I don't want to take any... I won't take any chances, you know? So John says, get the book. I get the book. He said, find the part about the capillaries. I said, I don't think it's in there. He said, yeah, that's the point. He said, if you had to know about stuff like that, there'd be a chapter on it. Oh, I would say to him, I think, he said, don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. He said, there's no chapter in here into thinking. So your thinking is what's the matter with you. And I was smarter than him, you know, and he's telling me that? Ooh, boy. He said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic, and then he'd start one of his speeches, you know. But God bless him. And I'll tell you, you know, I've been around this, this long, and I have all these opinions. I'm a very opinionated, self-absorbed alcoholic. But I think I've been hanging around so long, I'm entitled to inflict a little, some of my opinions on you. I was very happy not too long ago, the grapevine reprinted the correspondence between Bill Wilson and Dr. Carl Jung. As you know, Carl Jung was the greatest psychiatrist of the time in the 30s and 40s. And uh, he was the one who treated Roland Hazard. Roland Hazard brought the message to Ebby Thatcher. Ebby Thatcher brought the message to Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson brought it to Bob Smith. And here we are in Jefferson, Missouri, in July of 1997. And that's a long, long way from Akron, Ohio. And I'm not talking geography. Huh? Yes, yes. And Bill said to him in 1960, on the occasion of our 25th anniversary, that we of Alcoholics Anonymous consider you a founder, he 
said, because of your advice to Roland Hazard, who found the Oxford Group, who found Ebby, who found Bill. And he got back a very interesting letter from Carl Jung. And Jung said, I remember Roland Hazard. His problem was that he had separated himself from the whole, W-H-O-L-E. In medieval terms, said Jung, he had separated, separated himself from a union with God. And so the greatest psychiatrist of the time had his definition of alcoholism as a separation from God. And the longer I stay here, I was talking with Bob about it today, the more I am convinced that Dr. Young was absolutely right. I did not know, of course, that I had separated myself from God. In fact, I never knew that he and I were at one time joined. I didn't know. I thought my I thought my alcoholism came from bottles. It did not come from bottles at all. It came from my own mind. The problem it says centers in the mind. I have a mind of a chronic alcoholic. A lot of people don't have that mind. And I heard my my sweetheart Patty Ocha, who was the other half of my heart. I heard her talk last night. And she quoted what I heard read here tonight, and she said, God has all power. May you find him now. And if God has all power, and I have no doubt that he does, and we separate ourselves, and I separate myself from all power, I am powerless. Yes? Yes. And therefore... As Jung said, my remedy is to rejoin God, find God and have him do for me, as Patty said, all of the things I cannot do for myself. And the first thing he did for me that I could not ever do for myself was to take away from me the problem of alcohol. I don't know if you were like I was in the mind. But I'll tell you, I had this problem from a very, very early age. I've heard it so many times in AA. It seemed to me from my earliest recollections that somehow I did not belong, that there was something to matter. I didn't fit. I sort of spent a, a lifetime on the outside looking in. And it made me angry. And I drank at it. The way alcoholics do, I drank at it, and there was nothing wrong. Actually, I was very successful. I had a successful childhood. I had lots of pals and friends. Still do. I had a dream job, nice family, wonderful wife, all of that stuff. And I didn't fit in. I'd find myself 3 o'clock in the morning in some dump on the east side of Manhattan, looking into a glass, and the guy next to me is spitting on my shoe. And I said to myself, Professor, I don't think you belong here. And I had a wonderful home, and I even had a bar in that house. I didn't want to go up there. I didn't feel happy. And I couldn't very well talk about these things where I worked, but I could I say to the other teachers, you get locked up last night? Did I see you at the lineup this morning? They'd send for the police, you know. And I suffered from it. I suffered from it, and I really did. And I wasn't here too long. And the 12 and 12 tells us one of the greatest benefits of prayer and meditation is the sense of belonging that comes to us. And I have that sense now. I have that feeling of belonging. It's important to me to have that. You know, it isn't so much that I have given the great privilege of coming all this way to speak to all of you. All of you. Here's the truth of the matter. I belong here. Right? It's okay for me to be here. I'm a member. 
I'm writing off. JT has introduced me to Happy. And I feel right at home. I've come several thousand miles. I've never left home. Makes me feel good. Makes me feel good. And I found out that what he said was true, that this book has enough in it for me. For me, it has enough for me to live a happy and useful life. It says here that... uh, God does not make hard terms with those who seek him. Is that true? Is this a hard term this weekend? To be in this nice place with all these people, people who know you, love you, and you love them? Not a hard term, is it? No. It says as we draw near to him, he will disclose himself to us. And isn't that the way we are, you and I, in our own relationships with each other. If you want to know about me, get in my car. Join my group. Hang out for a while. I'll tell you all about it. Not all at once. We don't do that. But along the way, <coughs> you'll pick up everything you need to know. The book says I'm to tell you what it's like now. Well, I could go on and on and on. I gave Mike my resume, but he wouldn't read it. Let me put it to you this way. Every single thing, every single thing, every single title, every single honor, every single dollar that alcoholism took from me, this program has returned to me in ways that are so mysterious so marvelous that I, I've stopped thinking about Every single thing, everything has been come back to me. I'm a retired New York judge. I've been a professor of law at four different universities since 1975. I'm currently the senior tenured professor of law at Miami. And, uh, Even better, I bring you the good wishes and the fraternal good wishes of six of my children who are members of Alcoholics Anonymous. We have a bunch of grandchildren. I keep my eye on them. I would be remiss if I I didn't thank Ruth or Mike or who the hell it was that had the rare good judgment to (laughs) tell me to come by. I have to thank my pal JT for driving me over here from St. Louis and and watching me taking such good care of me over the weekend. I've been introduced. JT apparently has no men friends, but he does know a lot of good-looking women, which is not a bad thing either. I've been doing this for such a long time, into a habit, and this is what I do when I end. I read a page from this, and I'll read it to you now. It's something I read every day. I read it this morning. It's the last page in our book. It means something to me. It says, our book is meant to be suggestive. No. Still you may say, I will not have the benefit of contact with you who write this book. We cannot be sure. God will determine that. So your real reliance must always be upon him. He will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation. 
what you can do for the new man who suffers. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you do not have. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and for countless others. And I will count this weekend as a great event that has come to pass. It goes on to say, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and surely you will meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. There is a pamphlet in Alcoholics Anonymous which I think is our best pamphlet. It's called The Member's View of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you haven't read it, I suggest you do. It's marvelous. And in the very last page of that pamphlet, the author takes a biblical reference. And he recalls the time when John the Baptist was once again languishing in one of Herod's prisons. And John sent two of his friends to inquire of his cousin, Jesus, as to whether or not he was the Messiah. And these two men found him, and they walked with him, and they said to him one day, Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been waiting for so long? Or should we just wait for someone else? He never really answered that question. But he said to these men, go back to John and tell John only what you have seen and only what you have heard. Tell John that the blind can see and the lame can walk. Tell John that the deaf can hear and that the sick are made well and tell John that the poor have the gospel brought to them in my early training I was told that the word poor in that context could mean poor in spirit and everyone knows that the word gospel simply means good news and so my dear dear sisters and brothers in happy Missouri state convention assembled if you will accept a report from me based upon my years in Alcoholics Anonymous I will tell you only what I've heard and only what I have seen. And based upon that personal observation, it seems to me that the blind do see and the lame do walk. And I know that the deaf can hear. I know that. And most certainly most certainly, the sick are made well. And I have seen over and over and over again through the longest day and into the darkest night the good news of this program Broad to the alcoholic who suffers, the poor in spirit. God bless you.
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.